Welcome to episode 34 of the Energy Balance Podcast, where we teach you how to live without constant hunger and cravings, fatigue, brain fog, poor sleep, and all sorts of other low energy symptoms by maximizing your cellular energy. I'm Jay Feldman. I'm a health coach and independent health researcher. And joining me again today is my good friend, Mike Fave. Mike and I have been studying health and nutrition together for a long time now. And Mike also draws on his experiences from working within the healthcare industry. Today's episode is a Q&A episode where we will be discussing how to adjust macronutrient ratios for insulin resistance and diabetes. We'll also talk about other factors that can affect insulin sensitivity outside of those macronutrient ratios and how to address those factors if you are dealing with any sort of insulin resistance. We'll also be discussing the problems with the vast majority of melatonin supplements. We'll be talking about whether GABA plays a role in sleep and how to support healthy GABA production. And we'll talk about why we may want to reconsider using melatonin supplements in order to improve sleep and what we can do instead. If you have any questions that you'd like us to answer on a future Q&A episode, you can send an email in to j at jfeldmanwellness.com. That's J-A-Y at J-A-Y feldmanwellness.com. Or feel free to leave those in the comments if you're watching this on YouTube. To check out the show notes for today's episode, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com podcast, where I'll be linking to any studies or articles or anything else that we discuss throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with insulin resistance or diabetes, or you're having trouble sleeping and you're wondering about whether melatonin is the right way to go, or if you're dealing with low energy, fatigue, chronic pain, weight gain, gut issues, constant cravings and hunger, or hormonal imbalances, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course, where I will walk you through the main things that you'll want to focus on so that you can optimize your cellular energy availability. And I'll also explain why that's the key to resolving all of these symptoms and also chronic health conditions like diabetes and various others. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, let's get started. Okay, Galia asks, how much do you think should be the total caloric intake of sugars, proteins, and fats in insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes? Let's say 1,800 calories a day. How do you divide them? So there's a couple questions here, but the... I mean, the main question is just looking at macronutrient ratios in terms of somebody who has insulin resistance or diabetes, meaning that they aren't effectively using the carbs that they're taking in. And so there are, I mean, a couple of approaches here. You know, anybody from the the low carb standpoint would just be saying to avoid carbs. But of course, that doesn't actually solve the problem of not being able to use those carbs effectively. And one thing that's really important when it comes to being able to use those carbs effectively is or can be the amount of fat that's circulating as free fatty acids. So because of that, there, you know, this is one instance where potentially having a lower fat diet could be more helpful as far as improving carb utilization. You know, we typically are suggesting a more moderate fat intake, you know, 30 to 40%. But this is a situation where potentially, you know, trying you know, under 30% or even lower, you know, like a, a pretty low fat diet, which has been shown in some, some of the literature to be beneficial in this instance, it, it might be 
you know, a, a better idea here. There's, uh, you know, when, when looking at the very low fat diets, there there is evidence of those being pretty beneficial for people who are severely insulin resistant. Uh, Denise Midger has an article talking about that in, in defense of low fat, which I'll I'll link to in the show notes. But that's talking about basically 10 percent or less of um, dietary calories from from fat. So in an extreme example, that might be helpful. I mean, I, I would say there are a ton of reasons why somebody might be dealing with insulin resistance because there's various reasons why somebody might not be able to use carbs effectively. There are nutrient deficiencies as one, whether that's B vitamins or minerals like magnesium or zinc or copper uh, or you know endotoxin from having gut dysfunction. Those are things that might lead to an inability to use carbs effectively and lead to insulin resistance. So lower fat isn't necessarily the first place I would go because as we've talked about in the past, there's often a cost associated with that. It can be relatively stressful, just like a lower calorie diet can. Um, in that, when we have too low of free fatty acids, it does lead to a stress response. So there might be some costs associated with that. So it wouldn't be the first thing I do, but it is something that might be worth exploring if you are dealing with insulin resistance. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on what's causing insulin resistance. Right. Overall, I think that's the most important question. So. And in a lot of, so for a lot of type two diabetes, the insulin resistance, at least from the research that I've read, seems to be coming from um, endotoxemia, like a low grade chronic endotoxemia. And endotoxin, as we talked about um, quite a few times on here, is uh, it's a, it's basically like a portion of the bacterial cell wall that uh, the immune system recognizes and causes an inflammatory response. But it, in doing so, it actually directly shuts down uh, energy metabolism and it causes itself hypertriglyceridemia or hyper or hyperlipidemia basically. So it causes an increase of, uh, blood lipids. So cholesterol, triglycerides, um, because those have a, and we talked about just in our previous heart disease podcast that the increased blood lipids have a beneficial effect on binding up endotoxin, bringing it to the liver for destruction or detoxification without inducing a a potent inflammatory immune response. And in some studies with rats and, and different animals, when they have higher blood lipids or they're administ or they have a decent amount of bile acids in the intestine or anything along those lines, it basically eliminates a uh, endotoxic shock or hemorrhagic shock from endotoxic exposure, uh, particularly from the intestine. So, and the, there's the problem with the elevated blood lips Jay just mentioned is that it can lead to a degree of insulin resistance because you have a high amount of circulating free fatty acids. Um, and it's not necessarily just because the blood lipids, because the endotoxin itself impairs mitochondrial dysfunction. So it's sort of a, a huge system. And, and the reason why I'm touching on endotoxin specifically is because endotoxin is one of the main factors in diabetes, particularly type two diabetes. Um, and insulin resistance from there. So the, that would be the first thing that I would want to address is the endotoxin. And so that's why with the endotoxin, uh, basically, and there's some studies, uh, we'll link to some of them, but if I remember correctly, in some of the studies, they actually, and this was in rats, they diverted um, the intestinal contents past a, diff a different portion of the small intestine. So they basically like cut a portion, cut a portion, and move the flow around and then the diabetes within the animal stopped. And then in uh, bariatric surgeries in humans, when they do like a Ruin Y where they 
disconnect. I think it's from the stomach. They bypass the stomach and go directly to a certain the, the stomach. And I think part of, uh, I think it's the jejunum. And then they go directly to a different portion of the small intestine. They actually get rid of the diabetes that way as well. And it happens regardless of losing, whether or not the people lost weight, like the diabetic markers and blood sugar and insulin resistance improve. And I think this is further indication of endotoxin being a, a very prime, like startlingly primary component in type two diabetes. Um, the other thing to consider there is high amounts of polyunsaturated fatty acid consumption. So the, the goal would be to fix that underlying problem. And so, um, and so there's different dietary strategies with those goals in mind essentially so you don't want to be super low fat i mean and jay touched on it you can't it, that may help for some people because it basically forces your body to to use the carbohydrate that's coming in or it, especially if it's in if you're taking in high amounts of fruit uh or specific vegetables or or tubers and things like that the but the issue is is that in certain people, and this is why I think a lot of people find relief on keto diets, is that the high saturated fatty acid contents can trigger, trigger bile release from the liver, and then that can help clear out the small intestine. And then also having a high amount of uh, fatty acids, uh, saturated fatty acids, and monounsaturated fatty acids in the diet can help protect the liver from endotoxin. Um, so there's a, there's a whole host of factors going on here. So the goal would be to initially start with a, an uh, average amount of fat in the diet, maybe like 30% of saturated, monounsaturated fatty acids from butter, beef tallow, cocoa butter, and um, help to, number one, it protects against endotoxin, but it also stimulates the bile release, which may help to clear out the intestine, and then focus on carbohydrates that are easy to digest, but come with a lot of plant compounds and different polyphenols and flavonoids and things like that, because they basically... Um, help to fix that dysbiosis in the intestine. So that would be the goal. That would be the goal for me is to see what, if I can help clear out this small intestine um, with the saturated fatty acids, and then you can try different compounds, different plant compounds, different herbs can help with that process. And then making sure that you have enough carbohydrate on board from specifically if I think within four somebody who's type two diabetic and insulin resistant, I think the ideal would be fruit sugar um, and specifically from whole fruits and from hundred percent fruit juice would be the best way to go because of the plant compounds present within the fruit and the fruit juice. So, and for specific macronutrient ratios, I mean, the generally what we've talked about in previous podcasts was 30 to 40% for fats and then 40 to 50% for carbs and gen generally 20% um, and under for protein. And I mean, it really, those, those can vary a little bit and vary a decent amount. Some people do better on lower fat. Some people do better on, uh, higher fat, lower carbs, higher carbs, the protein content, I think generally stay around that 20% or lower just because mm -hmm. it's been shown in studies that there's no benefits to a large extent, um, of going to such higher amounts of protein besides causing satiety. Um, but the goal like no need to go above about 0.7 grams yeah. per pound. Of exactly. Because there's no, this, while you are increasing satiety, it's sort of an unnecessary increase because you start oxidizing the protein, which means you're using it for fuel rather than using it for reparative purposes. So in that context, you might as well just eat more carbs and more fat as a fuel source. Mm -hmm. So to recap, basically the goal would be to, or most diabetic 
conditions, type 2 and, and any type of insulin resistance, seems to be a combination of endotoxin, specifically from the intestine, and uh, polyunsaturated, high amounts of polyunsaturated fatty acids, and then consumption over time, and then also nutrient deficiencies. So the goal would be to lower the endotoxemia and fix the fatty acid issues with saturated fatty acids, uh, monounsaturated saturated fatty acids from the diet to trigger bile release and protect against the endotoxin. And then also to have a decent amount of carbs in there so that you're allowing your cells to start moving towards oxidative metabolism and using glucose as a fuel, as mm -hmm. a primary fuel source and fixing micronutrient deficiencies. And so that's that comes in within having a decent amount of fruit and specific tubers and specific vegetables that provide the nutrients that allow you to oxidize glucose and at the same time provide the glucose with it. And then also have the plant compounds that protect against, uh, the, against endotoxin and diabetes in general. I mean, a lot of diff there's it, you, it's, I don't think I've ever seen a study that showed that a hundred percent fruit juice or whole fruit consumption was associated with diabetes. Um, and even if the, even if there's, I, there might, there's like a few that show a ridiculously small, non-statistically significant, um, association that gets thrown out after adjusting for different variables. So the whole idea of we need to avoid, um, we need to avoid fruit and diabetes or type two diabetes or insulin resistance doesn't really make any sense. Um, and the other thing to just for some anecdotal evidence, if you look at different groups that that are using different diets so for example with keto people uh, or i guess we'll start with fruitarian people or vegetarian people who focus heavily on tubers and fruits and vegetables and things like that a lot of them are extremely thin um and are not overweight and are very seem to be very insulin sensitive um especially some of the fruitarian populations now there's other issues with those diets but the point being is that um the high amount of fruit consumption isn't making them obese or necessarily type two diabetic or showing any in indications of type two diabetes. And then the other thing is for keto people who are removing a lot of foods that are causing issues and focusing on saturated fatty acids and uh, solid animal proteins and animal foods. A lot of people there are reversing um, some of their diabetic symptoms and their hemoglobin A1C scores and their fasting blood sugars and uh, all those different types of markers that they are looking at now. And I think that that's primarily through, um, number one, getting rid of a lot of foods in the diet that are causing issues and then having a lot of foods that are protective against endotoxin, um, and helping to reduce endotoxin exposure. And so the point being is that there's strategies on both. I'm not saying one diet's better than other. I'm not supporting either one of those diets, but as anecdotal, anecdotal evidence, there's some aspects of those diets are working. And the question is, well, what are, what's working in those aspects? And I think it's avoidance of certain foods, like a lot of polyunsaturated fatty acids and then the saturated fat and solid nutrition from animal products in the ketos, keto or carnivore group. And then in the fruitarian and some of the vegan groups, a decent amount of nutrition from some of their plant foods and then, a de and then uh, decent amounts of sugars and carbohydrates um, and then modulation of the bacterial flora within the intestine. So those that it would, my recommendation would focus on those areas, and my main focus to start would be looking at what what's going on endotoxin wise in the gut, and then you know previous consumption of polyunsaturated fatty acids. Yeah, and in both in both the fruitarian and 
low-carb carnivore keto diets, you're also getting rid of, and I, I know you kind of glossed over this, but you're getting rid of most of the hardest to digest foods, the raw veggies and the um, grains and legumes and and uh, nuts and seeds, all of which are going to contribute to these gut symptoms and, and endotoxin production, which is, as you're saying, a huge point. So, so or a huge part of this picture equation. So, so to zoom out a little bit again, the when considering the macros as far as insulin resistance and, and type two diabetes, where we really have to start is kind of a step before that, which is what's leading to the insulin resistance in the first place. And I've written a couple articles, you know, videos we've talked about in previous podcasts, so I'll link to, to those things discussing insulin resistance and diabetes in more detail. But the important point to consider here is that insulin resistance is a state where our mitochondria are not able to convert carbohydrates to uh, energy. Endotoxin, as you mentioned, is a huge uh, factor here that can block that process. Nutrient deficiencies are another one. Polyunsaturated fats or PUFA are another one, which you mentioned. So yes, macro like macro ratios can matter, of course, uh, but it's we really like it's it's typically not going to be the solution. And I would look to solving a lot of those other factors first before even you know looking to to you know go low fat or moderate fat or anything like that. I mean, it, outside of having you know carbs and keeping it, um, you know, keeping a relatively balanced macro ratio i mean like i just wouldn't go to any extremes there for sure but you know before addressing those other things yeah i would it's a stepwise process so for the first thing to look at is okay well what is the underlying process like what is really what is what is really contributing do i have nutrient deficiencies have i been living on coca-cola and um easy mac and i don't know mcchickens and then so basically it's like okay well you have a, a rank nutrient deficiencies and a high polyunsaturated fatty acid consumption over time. And so then you want to, so maybe you want to start changing your diet first, what foods you're eating um, to having more fruits, uh, more specific types of vegetables or tubers, or, and this depends on what agrees with you, which takes a degree of self experimentation. And then from there, the next question is then you, then I would start to tweak on more of the nuances and the details, but for a lot of people, and there's a lot of anecdotes and case studies and reports out there of people, you know, moving over to even a Mediterranean diet or moving over to a, the paleo diet or a carnivore diet or a keto diet or a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet or fruitarian, whatever it is, and getting rid of a lot of uh, a lot of like the packaged foods, like heavily processed packaged foods, getting rid of some of the foods that are very difficult to digest for them getting rid of high amounts of vegetable oils and then moving into consuming more fruits and more specific vegetables and different components and getting beneficial results just from changing the diet without necessarily focusing on the macronutrients. Now that's not to say that I'm, again, it's not to say that I'm supporting all of those different diets, but I'm looking at the common thread between these diets and then people's reports of success and saying, okay, well, what's common to all of them? Cause there is a lot of them are working for people. And then, also looking at, okay, well, what's, what's the mechanisms under at least what is working for the different people. And it seems to be moving towards having the different plant compounds, having a greater amount of nutritious components, uh, having a components that don't cause, um, dysbiosis in the intestine. Like if you were to eat a, a re just a ton of extremely refined flour or something like that with, with refined sugar and then, uh, 
fortified iron and whatnot, all these different components that that can cause issues in the gut, especially if you already have some type of overgrowth and or high amounts of polyunsaturated fatty acid consumption and moving to eating adequate protein, adequate carbs, and adequate fat from, and even if the sources for some people aren't perfectly ideal, they're still, uh, so people still improve. They're still making the improvements. And I think that's important to point out. So again, it's the stepwise to be, okay, what foods are you eating? Start to look and adjust those foods. And then from there, you can start to get more nuance with macros, but you want to see, and a, a good place to start is to go into chronometer, which is an app that both Jay and I have used previously. Um, and it will, you can break down. And this is, if you're, this is not for everyone. It's if you were interested in doing it, or you're in a really bad spot, you can put those food, you can put your foods in the chronometer and you can see, am I meeting all my micronutrients? Am I meeting all my vitamins and minerals and things like that? And just to get a sense of what you're doing. I mean, if your diet is, if you put it in there and you're severely deficient on a bunch of B vitamins, and then you replace those B vitamins and some of your symptoms start to go away, then you can start to, you can go through that instead of having to do expensive lab tests and, and things and any types of diagnostics in the, in those ways. So yeah, that, that, that would be my recommendation to start the macros. I mean, a lot of people like to postulate online on what the ideal macros are. Um, but I don't, I mean, I don't think going to either of the extremes in a long-term case is very helpful. In some short-term cases, there's definitely some benefit to it for different therapeutic approaches. And Denise Minter talks, touches upon that in her article. And then there's a lot of research on different approaches within, uh, on PubMed and things like that. But I don't think uh, long-term, the different extreme groups don't seem to be lasting. I don't see many ex people doing fruitarian and making, being healthy over like 10, 15, 20 years types of type of thing, or people doing keto over extended, extremely extended periods of time and doing well. It's a lot of those are really therapeutic short-term types of things, if that. So that's something to keep in mind. I think it, you don't, and for a lot of people, I don't think it's necessary to even go there. And for a lot of people it may actually be harmful. So it's my recommendation to be to stay away from extremes and adjust the foods first and some of the guidelines and principles that we laid out here. Um, and then, and then you can get more nuanced as you go. You gotta, you basically gotta walk a little bit before you can run with some of this stuff. Yeah. I, I think you mentioned chronometer. I think using an app to track what you're eating is like, even just for a day, just, I mean, a yeah. lot of people who don't do it have, have so little idea of where they're at with all of these things. So I think that that's a really helpful place to start. And just so you have an idea of micronutrients and macronutrients and if you're eating enough calories and, and whatnot. Uh, yeah. So, and just to, so basically as far as if you've addressed a lot of those other factors that we've discussed and you're still, still dealing with these issues, then potentially trying a, you know, very low fat diet for a period of time could be helpful for bringing you out of that more insulin resistant state and then being able to bring the fat up later, which the reason why we don't want to go too low on fat is because it will stimulate our stress systems and can decrease yeah. the production of reproductive hormones and probably other beneficial pro uh, metabolic hormones as well. So uh, it wouldn't be a long-term so solution, but maybe something that would help in the short term. Yeah. And it can also impair digestion for some people. Yes. Yeah. And then it can also ratchet up, um, catecholamines for certain people as they for their body tries to release their stored fatty acids to compensate mm -hmm. and then you can be getting anxiety and 
And then the other thing that's it's really difficult to get enough calories sometimes without having some fat in the diet. Going really low fat, when you start getting really high in carbohydrate intake, it's hard to eat enough food, especially if you're focusing on, even if you're using 100% fruit juice, it still can be really difficult to be to feel uh, satisfied and satiated with the food. So, and the, the one thing I want to point out is, as you mentioned earlier, for protein content, we have about 0.7 grams per pound. Um, and then if you're, I mean, for somebody who's type two diabetes with insulin resistance, I don't assume them to be working out extremely heavy, but for people who are working out heavier, then you can go a little bit higher. They say, some people say a gram per pound. It's still, it's on the higher side, on the much higher side. The research shows about 0.7. And then basically after you have your 0.7 grams per pound, you're looking at filling, filling in the rest with what car with carbs and fat and determining what ratio that is that works for you. Um, then that's basically how I figured out, uh, or how I, I guess, constructed my diet initially. And then I don't track and for the chronometer recommendation, I don't track every day. I just put a three day spread in, saw where I was at and then sort of tweaked from there. And then I just, I don't, I just sort of, uh, it's intuitive at this point. So I just followed a general set guideline or principle for for example my meals are fruit juice whole fruit some raw carrots and then whatever protein source i want to have cooked in whatever fat i'm going to use for that and so it's very it has a loose element so it doesn't i don't want people to think that it's very strict maybe for a period of time with something like type 2 diabetes it might have to be but for going forward it doesn't it becomes a little bit more intuitive once you have the general setup or idea of what a meal what your meal is going to look like and so you can, even when you go to a restaurant, you can figure it out. You say, oh, I'm going to have, I don't know, I'm going to have a piece of sole with a side of butter. And then I'm going to have, I don't know, a spinach salad and then some, some roasted carrots on the side. And then if they have juice, they, I'll have some juice. And if not, I'll have some juice before, something like that. So you can figure it out as you go forward. But the chronometer is just to get an idea of micros to start. And then again, as we talked about how to break down the macros figure out protein requirement first and then fill in carbs and fat after and that the carbs and fat take time to play with and adjust and see what makes you feel the best. I mean, I still play with mine because it, your carb and fat ratio can adjust with the amount of activity and things that you're, you're doing in a day. So, and what you're, if you woke up too late, you can adjust your fats to be lower so that you're hungrier sooner between meals, different things like that. And that comes down, that comes later on. Yeah. One thing you had touched on is was, you know, as far as a low fat diet, it can be kind of difficult to maintain. I did want to mention that having starch makes that a lot easier for a lot of people, yeah. uh, which I know, in, you know it's not something like you've done low low fat and also low starch, which is a lot tougher as far as getting enough calories goes. And I, and I do want to mention also with those sorts of things, th- I do know people who have felt much better on a lower fat diet. Uh, it, it definitely hasn't been the majority of people, but. Again, that's why the experimentation and guidelines, we always want to reiterate that that's a huge part of this. And we're not saying that for everybody, you like low fat should only be a short term thing. Maybe some people do pretty well on it as as a long term option. It's just not the probably not the first thing we would recommend trying out. Again, it it all comes down to experimentation. And Mm -hmm. so we can set up guidelines or goalposts or some some loose parameters to give an idea. Cause if, I mean, if, if not, then sort of not leaving you with any sort of anywhere to go. So these right. are just starting points. And then you have to sort of, it takes self-experimentation. So even if I was to work with somebody, it would still be suggestions within 
within a guideline and then they would sort of have to try it out and experiment and then see what's going to work for them. I mean, there's only one way to figure it out and that's to basically just try it out. So the guidelines are helpful because it gives you a starting point and then you can adjust up or down or whatever, wherever you're going to go with that. But at the same time, it still requires that, that, um, that self-experimentation. So that's why we're not, there's no, like, as much as it'd be nice to say, well, you need to eat this much fat and this much carbs and this much percentage and this many grams and this much protein and, and this exact amount of grams. I mean, I don't, nothing, at least in my experience working with people, it hasn't turned out or functioned that way. There's a lot of variability for what people tolerate, even not only with amounts of different foods and macro, uh, macro ratios and, and, but also in terms of what foods they're eating and things. So there, there's a, there's a decent amount of leeway within the principles or guideline. And that's why it's a principle and not, not a specific recommendation. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's all context dependent. Yep. All right, let's move on. Um, unless you had anything to add. Nope. That's it. Okay. Jaden asks, can you go over the role of melatonin and GABA as well as other hormones that are necessary for the process of sleep to take place? So, uh, yeah, this is a good question, one that we haven't really touched on much. And we did talk a, a decent amount about sleep, but not as much the hormones involved. And melatonin is a big one. It's pretty you know, between melatonin and serotonin. I mean, those are the main ones that are recommended to be used for supplementation, uh, especially in relation to sleep. And you know, there's like melatonin is definitely involved in sleep uh, and is naturally produced when, like as night comes on, there's there's a regular circadian rhythm there where it does act as one of those signals that helps us go to sleep uh, in the same way that GABA does as well, where it, it also has an inhibitory action that helps lead to relaxation that allows for sleep. However, there's a lot of intricacies there as well. So as far as melatonin goes, just because it is involved in helping us go to sleep does not mean that we want to supplement with it if we can't sleep or that more is always better or anything like that. And the ideas there, I mean, at least in part, are coming from some research that's showing that as we age, melatonin production generally decreases. And I think it's important to consider there that, so I I mean, I guess even to back up, what I would say is that melatonin is basically a part of the stress hormone cascade. And in response to the stress of night, it's produced and has some anti-inflammatory relaxing effects, which are beneficial and very helpful for, for things like sleep. But that doesn't make melatonin itself beneficial or something that we want to increase the production of, much like other stress hormones. If we were to look at cortisol, for example... Cortisol is generally anti-inflammatory. It's why cortisone and so many different variations there are used to, you know, for various skin issues or um, you know, just as very general anti-inflammatories. So it has what you could call beneficial effects, but in the long term, there's detriment there if there's excessive amounts. And so I would say that melatonin falls into a similar category where it has a necessary helpful effect in the same way that cortisol does. But that doesn't mean we want to be doing things that increase it. It doesn't mean we want to be supplementing with it. But instead, we want to make sure that the proper physiological function is in place so that it doesn't get dysregulated. So, yes, with age, and you could basically say with dysfunction, as metabolism reduces and as 
uh, in general, bodies deteriorate, the ability to adapt to stimuli also de- decreases. And this can present and does present in various ways. And in one, ways that, one way that it does is with melatonin. So we see that as we age in response to the stress of night, we don't produce as much melatonin. But and I'll and kind of we'll dig into the whole supplementation side, but that doesn't mean that we want to just replace the melatonin. We just want to fix the process that or fr- fix the underlying function um, that has become disrupted and has inhibited the melatonin production. So, one thing that I think is also important to mention there is that the amount of melatonin that's so. I guess what I'd say is yeah, part one is we want to fix the underlying problems there that would lead to a lack of melatonin production, which is just all of the general things that go with depressed metabolism, d- uh, decreased ability to handle stress and properly adapt to it. Uh, but the other thing, too, is, you know, there may be a certain place for supplementation for people who, at least while they're trying to address those underlying issues, are having trouble sleeping. However, the doses that are typically recommended for melatonin are much, much higher than the physiological doses of melatonin that are produced on, on like a, you know, in, in a regular healthy person. So typically, typically we'll see doses of, you know, one, two, three, five milligrams, sometimes 10 milligrams or more of melatonin just to help with sleep. And I'm actually, I'm just going to read this quote from a study because it kind of encapsulates everything that I'm going to get at here as far as the dosing of melatonin goes. So it says that oral doses of one to five milligrams, which are now widely available in drugstores and food stores, result in serum melatonin concentrations that are 10 to 100 times higher than the usual nighttime peak within one hour after ingestion, followed by a decline to baseline levels, uh, baseline values in four to eight hours. So what it's saying there is that the oral doses of you know using one to five milligrams of melatonin results in way higher amounts of melatonin that we would normally get at our peak of melatonin production. And then the next uh, sentence, going back to that quote, is very low oral doses of 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams given in the daytime result in peak serum concentrations that are within the normal nighttime range. So basically, if somebody was to use melatonin, they would want to be using a much lower dose of 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams to match what would normally be produced if they're having dysfunction in that realm. You want it in a physiologic dose, and that's the same that goes with and other hormones that you would use in general as well. If you, if that's even if you were going to use it, and which is not necessarily what we're recommending, mm-hmm. but keeping things in physiologic dose makes a lot more sense than mega dosing things, especially when you consider the effects on other pathways, not not only adjacent to but also downstream of what's going on. And one of the things I think you're going to touch on as well is that melatonin is, is actually a dis, seems to be a disposal form. For serotonin so serotonin mm-hmm. is converted into melatonin at night and melatonin does have some um it's basically like signals nighttime so it signals almost and but an excessive amount is not necessarily good because it has like a general uh almost like a, a, a metabolic suppressing effect to some extent and i've seen studies where it actually lowered star protein um star protein function or expression which is the uh, steroid acute regulatory protein, which basically is functions in transporting cholesterol into uh, the mitochondria to allow it to be converted into steroid hormones. And so you don't want to continue, you don't want to keep hammering that 
pathway and lowering metabolism and shutting things down to sleep you it, it, you also want to allow the serotonin that's formed in your body to be converted into melatonin if it is indeed a disposal pathway um and then the, so the question that would that would be more important as far as melatonin in my mind would be what if you are having issues with sleep and it is related to melatonin well why aren't you converting your serotonin into melatonin and then the question then that would be well are you exposed to excessive amounts of blue light at night mm-hmm. and because that that basically stimulates a receptor in the eye melanopsin that shuts down melatonin production and so the goal would be to number one start looking okay am i sitting in front of a computer screen before i go to bed is that why i can't sleep um did i eat enough carbohydrates because the other thing to keep in mind is for sleep and in general is if if your cortisol or your stress hormones cortisol or adrenaline are jacked up or raised up then they have a, a awakening effect and that awakening effect can keep you up so there's i mean melatonin is implicated in sleep and serotonin so a lot of people will use 5-htp or will use mm-hmm. melatonin supplementation um but the the real goal would be to get your melatonin to function properly and then to see if other hormones like having excessive amounts of catecholamines and glucocorticoids which will keep you awake and will prevent sleep and excess cortisol has been shown to be uh, a problem with insomnia um if getting those down and seeing why those are elevated and then i guess i'll let you go into the gaba portion and i'll i'll go yeah, and, uh, we'll talk about it after yeah well and just to add in as far as melatonin goes too something that's signaling night and is downregulating downregulating our metabolism uh also kind of signaling basically hibernation and slowing down our respiratory systems or like mitochondrial respiration so that we can sleep and like shut everything down to go to sleep which isn't i mean it's not like fully shut down of course but it's a slowing down right exactly something that does that is not something that we want to be getting excessive amounts of like with with a ton of supplementation and things uh so yeah i mean it's yeah so that, that's just why i would i wouldn't be so focused on making sure you're getting enough melatonin as you said there can be a ton of other things that are inhibiting your ability to sleep properly and as, if you're addressing those then that should lead to a re-regulation of the melatonin system i think in my experience with and especially with the older population i would say more of the issue with sleep with sleeping problems that i find is either elevated cortisol or poor sleeping hygiene related to for example i'll have um especially in the hospital a lot of patients who have brain injuries uh they get distorted circadian rhythm and that's that's the specific population but for the other patients who are having either heart attacks or heart disease or um even autoimmune flares or whatever's going on um you they don't they wind up either number one they don't get enough sun exposure during the day because they're in a facility but then they'll wind up falling asleep at like two three four five o'clock and then they'll sleep for like four hours and then they won't be able to go to sleep again that night or they'll go to sleep at like three o'clock in the morning and wake up at five or wake up at six so they have poor sleep hygiene and they're distorting their circadian rhythm because they're not getting any sun and they're they have access to fluorescent light all the time just blue light all the time and then the other thing is a lot of them they have a lot of um they a lot of them have elevated cortisol i mean regardless of whether you see it on a blood test or not just looking at their conditions it it goes hand in hand with elevated cortisol and then a side effect known of taking glucocorticoids is insomnia 
Mm. And then uh, same thing with um, adrenergic medications or catecholamines. They cause awakeness, alertness. So those, I, I don't think melatonin, I mean, I think there's a definitely a, a portion, uh, like that's definitely at play with sleep, but I don't think supplementing melatonin is ever really the solution. Mm-hmm. I think what's more important, especially when we start looking at the research talking about one to five milligram doses being 10 to a hundred times than the normal amount of melatonin you'd be exposed to and understanding melatonin's context as, um, a compound essentially a hormone created to slow down the system for because of the the supposed stress of night um you don't want to hammer that at high amounts and i would and if you look at it in the context of being a disposal for serotonin you want to move your serotonin in into melatonin if it is indeed the disposal so the goal would be to optimize your own melatonin production and then and so in that case would be stopping exposure to blue light but then after that, if you're still having issues sleeping, the question is, well, are your stress hormones elevated? I think, and I think that that's more prominent than the melatonin issue and the blue light issue is the, the elevated stress hormones. Mm-hmm. And the elevated stress hormones could be from a psychological stress. It could be from not eating enough. And it could be from having any type of gut irritation or chronic infection. And all those are important to look at because those can interrupt the stress pathways in and of themselves. And I know for me, for, for example, if I had a long day and I miss a meal or something like that, it impacts my sleep. I wake up in the middle of the night. And if I um, had an excessively stressful day, uh, it takes a couple hours for me to wind down before I can go to sleep because I'm wired. And this is, and I'm in my 20s. So you can see the effects, of, and you can see the effects of these adaptive hormones on my own sleep pattern at, at this age. I'm sure even for people going older, it becomes more progressed. And even with my own, even with my own dad, my own father, he was having pretty bad insomnia for a period of time and he just wasn't eating during the day. And then once, and then he would just wind up eating all night long (laughs) cookies and then he would be able to sleep and that would be his cravings. And that to me was, I mean, and this is anecdotal, but indicative of number of having elevated stress hormones. And then those impacting his ability to sleep because your body essentially can't relax, if, especially if we consider that the high energetic state is a relaxed state or a potential energy state. So I think that's it's really important to look to. Yes, the melatonin can can be involved. Um, and that's uh, mainly, I would say, exposure to blue light, excessive amounts of blue light and light at night. But I think the bigger players for sleep issues are elevated stress hormones for many for many people. And then I, the next point, the next part of the question was um, the relationship of GABA and sleep. Yeah. Before we go there, I just want to mention also just talking about stress hormones and sleep. A, it's definitely something I've seen a lot with my clients where all sorts of various things that help to lower stress hormones, especially eating enough, eating enough fat and carbs, especially in the evening, makes a huge difference. We also did a couple of episodes discussing all sorts of factors as far as sleep goes in a lot more detail. So I'll link to those in the show notes. But yeah, let's let's go ahead and talk about GABA now. Okay, so for GABA, um, so GABA works a little bit differently than than melatonin. It's not a depressant on metabolism, and in many situations, things that are elevating metabolism, like thyroid hormones or androgens, have a strong relationship with GABA in the brain. And it has so GABA would be so while melatonin would be more of like a suppressing hormone and this is these are like shorthand easy way to remember sort of conceptualizations of 
what these hormones are doing. So there's, again, there's a lot more nuance to this, but the, the, in general, the easy way to put it is that melatonin has like a suppressing effect where it, it sort of slows the system down. So I guess to say a better, better term would be a slowing effect. Whereas GABA has a relaxing effect where mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a slowing down of the system. It's, it's, I guess that one's more of just like a, an overall relaxation, like a calming down. So you're not slowing processes down. You're just, you're calming down in general. You're, it's being able to easily handle the different stimuli and whatnot. And so with, with GABA, it actually has a lot of health benefits and beneficial effects and it shuts down the stress pathways directly um, and showing inhibiting. So a lot of like the, the drugs that stimulate GABA or the GABA receptors, you have your, um, your gabapentin, your baclofen, your Lyrica, and then you have your benzodiazepines. Um, and then you have a lot of seizure medications work through GABA. They inhibit the excessive excitability. And the excitability is generally from a lower me metabolic state. Um, and so then all of those different compounds help to relax the body and then help it to get to sleep. And it, it, and for some of them, they actually can improve deep sleep, like compounds like uh, Phenobut, which is a GABA agonist drug. And then the the and then some of them also just have like a generally uh, stress reducing effect and they shut down the stress hormone pathways. Um, and that then there's studies with baclofen, gabapentin, uh, the benzodiazepines, which is like your lorazepam, your Ativ, which is Xanax, Ativan. Now, the problem with these drugs, and the reason I talk about these drugs is because most of the literature talking about GABA functions through looking at these different drugs, because uh, obviously there's a decent amount of monetary incentive in finding these different drugs. The problem with all these different GABA substances is that the body builds a tolerance to them pretty quickly, and they also, they're pretty addictive because of how relaxing they are, and some of them have a euphoric effect. Mm -hmm. So it's important to... I mean, you can use some of these substances, I would say, in light of, um, in light of taking high dose melatonin. Now I'm going to say which substances specifically, cause I'm not going to, I don't think taking, uh, benzodiazepines like Xanax and Ativan are a good idea. Um, and again, those are used also for anxiety. So again, it has a relaxing effect and it shuts. And the reason they work is because they shut down the stress pathways. And that's also why they By increasing GABA. By increasing GABA, exactly. Or they don't, not even increasing GABA, but stimulating GABA. Because a lot of them, a lot of them are molecules that are, it's essentially like, uh, I think baclofen, Lyrica, and, and another one, Phenobut, are basically GABA with a modified structure, if I remember mm -hmm. correctly. Mm -hmm. And so they just, when they modify the structure, they affect how they're metabolized. So they can either be more potent at the receptor site, or they can be harder to break down um, because of the change in structure. So they're acting as like they're acting very similarly to GABA on the yeah, exactly. recipient cell that they're interacting with. They're acting as if they were GABA, more or less. They're acting as if they were GABA, and some of them are acting as if they were like GABA times like a hundred, like way exactly. extremely like way more potent forms of GABA. Right. And so it's I, I guess we'll to to give an overarching picture. GABA has a relaxing effect. It turns off the stress pathways, and that's why I think it's helpful for sleep in general. And so like it, it turns off the excessive amounts of catecholamines. It turns off the uh, HPTA axis, which is involved with catecholamines, but also cortisol production. And then it also affects ACTH, which is adrenocorticotropin hormone, which is the hormone that stimulates cortisol production. And then also corticotropin releasing factor, which is the hormone that stimulates 
ACTH, which stimulates cortisol. So it basically turns off the whole stress pathway. Um, and then at the same time, it also has uh, an inhibitor inhibitory effect in the brain interacting against excessive excitability with too much excessive glutamate, which is the, uh, the main uh, neurotransmitter associated with excitability. And usually you see high amounts of glutamate in seizures or in brain injuries or, or things like that. So it has a generally protective effect. Um, and so the substances, so from there, basically the substances to, to use from the GABA perspective would be something like, um, and there's a lot of basic compounds like vitamin C has a GABA modulatory effect. Um, progesterone functions through the, has a, like a, a GABA effect in the brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, chamomile has a, a GABA modulating effect. Um, taurine and glycine have inhibitory effects that, that, that have been hypothesized to function through GABA. Um, then as far as medications, I would say the safest one that I've seen, and again, tolerance still functions with this, with this compound. Um, so, and addictiveness can function with this compound. So you have to use it very carefully and very sparingly and know what you're doing, but that's Phenobut. The other ones, the other drugs that are approved in the United States, like the benzodiazepines are actually, those are scheduled drugs and those require a doctor's prescription. And those are extremely difficult to get off of. And they have really potent withdrawal symptoms. And essentially what those withdrawal symptoms are really bad anxiety and insomnia <laughs> because it basically, it dysregulates those stress pathways. So it would be better to focus on less, like much less potent, um, compounds like the previous ones mentioned and then the other drugs are like gabapentin or lyrica which is again a control lyrica is a controlled substance and then baclofen um a lot of those ones have a have a relaxing effect as well but they're much more potent than the other substances and they create dependency and they have withdrawal side effects so i i mean i would stay tend to stay away from those um and then the other thing is is taking people take those just to relax even beyond sleep and when you when you're taking them during the day as a relaxing agent, they also can cause sleepiness because a lot of people will be put on gabapentin um, for seizures and and any type of after any type of brain injury with throughout risk for seizures. And a lot of patients will complain of being just sleepy and drowsy throughout the day because they're, or they're essentially just really relaxed um, on the medications, especially when you start going higher doses. So, right. And, and that's because the in seizures the it's basically overexcitation, excessive amounts of yep. glutamate, uh, and GABA is the inhibitory side of that. Uh, and so, and and in going along with that, and in, in it in GABA's effect on inducing sleepiness, it does there is a circadian rhythm associated here where uh, GABA does have this kind of twenty four hour cycle in certain areas of the brain that are involved in like our circadian rhythms where it increases when it's dark when it's nighttime to help to relax us so we want to make sure that those processes are working properly and all of the general metabolic processes are involved there where GABA is basically directly produced as a result of of the mitochondrial respiration pathways it's like a downstream product of it um, so as long as those things are working well GABA should be working well I mean again as you said it's also involved like there are so many regulatory factors here from the hormonal standpoint where you mentioned uh, progesterone, which is also working through allopregnanolone in the brain, which is all in also increased from all sorts of other steroids. Um, but basically it's just the protective pro-metabolic steroids 
support GABA production, um, which makes sense. Again, talking about the inhibitory effects actually being the result of increased energy as opposed to something like melatonin where these those are kind of more of a slowing down hibernating type effect, which is not necessarily a relaxing effect. Um, and just to add in a little bit too, as far as GABA production goes, um, certain vitamins, I mean, you had mentioned uh, as far as vitamins and nutrients go, you had mentioned taurine and glycine, which are definitely good ones. And then also uh, vitamin B6, magnesium are both yep. um, necessary for GABA production. So uh, in order to make sure that you're producing enough GABA, you'd want to make sure that you're not deficient in either of those. And zinc is also involved in, in GABA's like binding effect. So, um, I mean, just kind of as far as supporting GABA production, I mean, all of the general metabolic things are involved, uh, but using some of those, you know, the the compounds that you mentioned, and then also some of those nutrients can be helpful for um, like short-term help. Yeah, especially if you're having, a, if you're stressed out or you have a hard day at work or something like that, those can be added into the toolbox. And so, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of those compounds, taurine, glycine, vitamin C, chamomile, um, vitamin B6, zinc, magnesium, um, a lot of those compounds are, are not going to cause dependency. They're not going to cause withdrawal symptoms. They can help relax. And the other thing to keep and keep in mind here is that one of the most potent things to help people relax. And this is what, what a lot of people recommend to take at night is having a decent amount of carbohydrate, a decent amount, specifically sugars. So you can take all you can, and cause the reason I want to point this out is cause there's some people or some ideas online where it's discussed like oh you need to take magnesium and glycine and taurine mm-hmm. and all these things to lower cortisol and whatnot and help raise GABA production in the brain so that you can sleep but you need to be on a zero carb diet and it's yeah. just like well you're shooting your you can set yourself up by having all the nutrients but if you don't have enough because again during the night you and you need to have adequate fuel present in general not only to lower cortisol but to provide your your brain your brain with glucose, and that comes from storing glycogen in the liver. So you want to make sure you have enough glucose on board. Um, number one, in, again, if you had like a stressful day, to deal with that stressful day as well, to provide resource to deal with the demands that are applied to the system, and then at the same time, so that you have enough glycogen for the liver to function at night, and that will lower the the um, the stress hormones in its of itself as well. And then all the other supporting nutrients have modulatory effects or effects in allowing for proper GABA production and utilization um, and things, anything along those pathways. But at the same time, you need to have that, the, the nutrition behind it as well. So even with the sleep stuff, it, it's important to get in and make sure that your dietary patterns and whatnot are, are on, are on board and you have them locked in to a decent extent. And then you can start creating a toolbox of compounds that you can use to support different issues here and there. But again, the, the main and most important aspect is that diet is situated appropriately. And it's because you can, you can take, you can take your Xanax or, and a lot of people do, they have extreme anxiety or they can't relax at night. And what winds up happening is that back in the day, you'd come home and you have a couple drinks. Now they have Xanax and Ativan and, all these different medications to help you sleep and relax, but, and by functioning through the GABA pathway, but at the same time, the, everything else isn't supported. So as soon as you stop taking these compounds, you, the system is just, it, it's not functioning appropriately. 
you don't have the, the underlying basis in line. And then you start, you can have the withdrawal symptoms and whatnot, especially because a lot of these compounds distort that pathway. So again, the most important is having your diet and lifestyle as much on point as you can. And then you can have a toolbox of compounds to use after. And uh, again, the important for us, I don't think our recommendation is to go use high dose melatonin. I don't even think it's to take low dose melatonin. The idea would be to figure out um, why your melatonin is not functioning properly. And I think for a lot of people that tends to be because of blue light exposure at night, like looking at your phone before bed and easy ways to adjust this is just you have red light filters that you can download for every phone at this point. You can adjust the settings on any type of iPhone um, to create, to make the screen very red. There's uh, I think there's Iris and F.Lux for computers. Um, and then at night you can have, even I have in my room, I have a, uh, just, you can go to the store and you can buy, uh, the little clamp lights that they use at construction sites or anything like that. You can buy that at Lowe's or Home Depot. And then they also sell bulbs that is an led with a red filter over it. And that just produces red light. And the red light hasn't been shown to shut down melatonin production. So if you're, you're worried specifically about your melatonin production and cause the question was very specific to melatonin then the best way I think to deal with that issue is to avoid blue light at night and you maybe move over to red light to after once the sun goes down, basically. Um, and you can even use Christmas lights. You just get the little, the little red colored ones. So all those are easy options to just get a little bit of red light. Um, and then the, but the, I think the main issues for, for a lot of sleeping stuff is stress hormones, which is what we touched on. And you, Jay will reference other, podcast that we talked about with that and then different sleep hygiene issues and circadian rhythm issues like getting enough sunlight during the day and how long your naps are and when you're taking naps and and anything along those lines and then as far as GABA we listed again it comes down to diet and then there's different compounds that we mentioned that can help modulate GABA and allow it to function properly and be produced properly and used properly but again it comes down to diet at the baseline and then there's within one uh, I guess, medication that we discussed to help with, uh, specifically for sleep, uh, with GABA was, uh, was Benabut. And that was in like, I guess, more dire situation. And there was stipulations on it being, uh, addictive and having withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think as far as blue light goes, I don't know if you meant the blue mentioned the blue light blocking glasses, but that's, uh, that can be helpful as well. And yep, we we did in those sleep episodes. We talked about the impacts of light, circadian rhythm, all that stuff. So I'll link to those. And uh, as far as as far as sleep is concerned, yeah, I don't have anything else to add there. No, I don't. I don't either. Okay. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please leave a review, a like, a comment, or a five star rating on iTunes. All of those things really do a lot to help support the podcast. And if you have any questions that you'd like us to answer on a future Q&A episode, or if you have any topics that you'd like us to discuss on an entire episode, send those in to j at jfeldmanwellness.com. That's j-a-y at j-a-y-feldmanwellness.com. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, feel free to leave those questions in the comments. To check out the show notes for today's episode, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where you can take a look at any of the links to studies or articles or other podcast episodes that we discussed throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with any of those symptoms that we discussed today, whether that's insulin resistance or diabetes, or if you're having trouble sleeping or with anxiety, 
or if you're dealing with any other sorts of low energy symptoms, whether that is fatigue or chronic pain or weight gain, gut issues, constant cravings and hunger, hormonal imbalances, if you're dealing with any other chronic health conditions, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course where I'll walk you through the main things to focus on as far as nutrition and lifestyle are concerned so that you can optimize your cellular energy, which is the key to resolving all of these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, I will see you in the next episode.